As you make your way back to your seat, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 22, and we'll read together the chapter, and then we will study together the Word of God, what He has to teach us this morning from Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Didlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Father, what a blessing it is to be able to be here now to come to hear from you in your word. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, your spirit, through your word into our hearts. God, that we would be changed, that you would be glorified, 
that would be taught, that would be changed, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the message title this morning is Stop! Now, I'm going to make a statement here. It may sound at first unloving. It may sound kind of difficult. It may surprise some of you here, maybe not. But here's the statement with that preface that makes everybody kind of say, okay, I'm going to listen at least to the next few seconds. Here's the statement. Much of what is called Christianity today is at best questionable. It's questionable at best. There are a lot of ideas about, out there about what Christianity is. The world will tell us a lot about what, what we're supposed to be believing. And a lot of people in the church tell us what Christianity is, but we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about that. Tragically, there are a lot of ideas. And there are other religions that are pretty sure about themselves, especially compared to what is called Christianity. You think about what it means to be Muslim. What does it mean to be Muslim or to be part of Islam? The word means submit. That's what Muslim, that's what Islam means. You are one who submits to Allah and to His Word in the Quran. So, what you do is you order your life around what Allah says for you to do, what His Quran says. So, you're supposed to dress a certain way. You're supposed to speak a certain way. You're supposed to even eat in specific ways. And your whole life is wrapped up in being Muslim. And there are times when it's devoted time for worship, but your life is a a life of worship lived to Allah. To be Hindu means learning to view life and the universe and yourself in a whole different light, a a, a way that's totally different from anything that we understand here in the West, uh, really from anything that's that's inherent to human nature by God's grace that helps us make sense of the world. Now, you've got to turn that around, kind of turn it upside down, and think of everything around you differently because you're driving yourself to try to figure out how to achieve unity between your spirit and the, the spirit of the supreme being which is either in everything around you or is everything around you. And so your entire life is built around this change of thinking and this change of reality and nature and how it all works together. So you can see that it's all-encompassing. And the reason that we've talked about those two, Islam and, and Hindu, Hinduism, is because those are the, the two largest religions on this planet aside from Christianity. And both of them have set aside times for worship, but both of them are all-encompassing in life, and they're meant to take control of you, and they demand a commitment to a different kind of life. But what does it mean to be Christian? To listen to many preachers, or to listen to much Christian music, or to read many Christian books today, it means, well, it means praying a prayer and saying that Jesus loves me, and now I'm safe forever. He's never going to let me go. I get dunked in a tank of water, and now I get to live my life, right? Now I can pursue my dreams, my desires, my goals, and if I believe enough, then He will bless me. If I have enough faith, I'll be successful in what I want to do. He'll give me strength so that I can live a victorious life, because that's what God wants for me. That's what we hear a lot about what Christianity is. So, so really, in reality, Christianity becomes a thinly veiled religion of self-worship. I can lift up my desires. I, I can get what I want. Jesus is for me. God is for me. I can do all things because He strengthens me. I can get what I want. 
and I'm already forgiven, so I don't have to worry about doing anything bad or not doing anything good because it's all forgiven, it's taken care of. I can live a life or I can desire to live a life of ease, comfort, wealth, success. And it's not really a life of worship unless we're talking about what I'm looking for, what I want. My dedicated worship as Christians in, in so much of what's called Christian, somebody becomes someone who attends a church when it's convenient, when I'm okay with it, when I'm ready, when I'm not too tired, when there's not something else for me to do, on my terms, in my time, when the church does the music that I like, when the church has the programs that my children like and that I prefer, and the messages are appealing in short, (laughs) when I'm down, I either need to believe more, I need to kind of force it or fake it till I make it, or take some more medicine. (laughs) And so if we really stop to, be, to, to read the Word of God and to, to hear what God says about worship, that's not really the extent of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, that's not it at all, is it? That's not it remotely even close. So what does it mean? The essence of a Christian is not someone who simply prayed a prayer one time or got wet one time in a, in a, in a bucket. <laughs> it's not someone who lives a victorious, successful life or somebody who calls himself or herself one or somebody who says, I trusted Jesus one time, long time ago. Uh, it's not trying to be a really good person. The essence of being a Christian, this is in your notes, is someone who has become a transformed worshiper a transformed worshiper. This, this Christianity thing is also all-encompassing in your life, affecting every part of your life. It, it's a transformed worshiper because all human beings are worshipers. We're all worshiping something. We find something of value, and we dedicate ourselves to it. We pay a high price for what we worship, and not just one time, but continually. It can be love. I'm searching for love. I worship love, and so I've got to have love. And if I don't have love, and if I can't find someone who loves me, then I'm going to be lost, and I'm going to be hurting, and I'm going to be alone, and I need to find love or money or relationships, Um, respect. I've got to be respected. I've got to be appreciated. I've got to get some, some comfort in fame or glory. And we see that there are people that worship just about anything. Just about everything around us, somebody worships sports or comfort or money, food, whatever it is, and you may claim to be otherwise. You may say, well, that's not me, but we're all tempted into that way because we're made to be worshipers and we are worshiping something all of the time. Our lives reveal what it is. What is worthy, that's what worship is, something that's worthy of our attention, our affections, our resources of time and money and energy and all of that. What is it that we're after? Christians are transformed worshipers. Those who are transformed from worshiping any of those false gods, any of those idols that we make up and and set up to become worshipers of the true God through Jesus Christ, God, Lord Savior, and that produces a new kind of life. And see, that's what Jesus taught the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Do you remember? She's talking to him, and, and she becomes convinced that he's a prophet because he talks to her about her sin. And, he, and she says, okay, you're a prophet. Let me ask this question, because we're worshiping here, and you Jews say you've got to worship there, so which is it? How do you worship God? And Jesus says, yes, you're worshiping. You Samaritans are worshipers, but you worship what you don't know. You're worshiping, but wrongly. He says, the Father is seeking those who will worship Him, 
And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. See, that's what God is looking for in people. That's what, that's what Christians become transformed worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Not people who pray a prayer and then live for themselves, but worship properly. The Holy Spirit enables a person, us, a, a man, a woman, a, a young person, an old person, whoever it is, whatever station, the Holy Spirit comes to us and helps us to understand the truth about God, about ourselves from the Word of God so that we're not worshiping improperly or wrongly. He enlightens our mind, our spirit, our affections, our soul, what we are from within, the center and essence of who we are. He reforms that and changes that so that we worship him in truth and in spirit, in spirit and truth, and it controls us and makes us different. It changes us. That's how we worship God in spirit and truth. That's the only way we can rightly, properly worship God. And every time Jesus spoke to a person, he was speaking to them these same things. He, he didn't say, whenever you're ready, when you're convenient, when it's convenient for you, uh, just come on to me and I'll make all your dreams come true. Remember one chapter before that, he talked to Nicodemus. He said, you cannot see God, you cannot come into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You have to become a transformed worshiper. He told those who did not believe in him in the next chapter of John, John chapter 5. You're studying the scriptures, and when you're doing that, you're studying all about me, and to have eternal life, you have to come to me, Jesus said. The rich young ruler, uh, his 12 disciples, everybody he talked to, everybody he spoke with, he was teaching these same things. Your life will be changed when you come to me in faith, when you turn away from sins. He even told his 12 disciples that when they were going to come to follow him, and he teaches us the same thing. He says, if you're going to, you need to love me supremely. You need to be devoted to me over all other relationships with anyone and everything else, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, husband, wife, even your own life. <laughs> and whoever does not is not worthy of him. He says, you can't be my disciple. You're worshiping that other relationship. You're worshiping something else. He said, what would it profit to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? So deny yourself and anything else here. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what Jesus said. And we could go on and on, but the point is that everyone is a worshiper of something, and Christians have become transformed worshipers so that our lives are lived as worshipers of God in Jesus Christ. So Christian worship is all-encompassing, and it's, it's normal-breaking. It, it shatters the mold of what's normal, and it produces a different kind of person. It could even, Jesus says, cost you your life. It could cost you the life of someone you love. It does not mean I get to do whatever I want. And so as we study Genesis 22, what we're, what we're going to be seeing here is someone who has become a transformed worshiper of God. And Abraham doesn't know Jesus Christ because Jesus would not come for another 2,000 years, but it's interesting that Abraham was looking forward 2,000 years. We're looking backward 2,000 years. It's the same Savior who has saved us both and who brings us to God. But Abraham at this point knows that God has promised the serpent head crusher and that he's coming through his line through Isaac. He knows that much at this point. So he is fully and completely dedicated to this living, loving God fully dedicated to him. He's not perfect, and we've seen that in his life as we've studied his life. But this is probably the most well-known chapter for Abraham's life, right? This is the one that, that so many of us know, and, and 
much of this may not be new to us as we study, but, but what needs to stand out to us in this account is maybe, maybe that, maybe that exact thing. What's not new to us should become new to us again. Who this God is. Renewing our mind about God. Renewing what we think about, what it means to worship Him with our life. And there are four lessons for us to understand what a faithful worshiper of God is, what, what it looks like in a life, or what a, what a Christian really is. It, it's number one, the transformed, fully faithful worshiper receives God's commands. In verses one through 10, we're gonna see that the faithful worshiper receives God's commands. Verse one says, after these things. Well, what things? Well, everything that came before this in Abraham's life, his, his entire life. What we're looking at here in this chapter are God's final words to Abraham. We never see God speak to Abraham in Scripture again after this. And in fact, these are the last acts of Abraham. After this, Sarah, his wife, is going to die. And then he's going to send his servant away to get a wife for his son Isaac. And then Abraham's going to die. This, this, is, this is everything in, in Abraham's life has led up to this event. What is this event? The event is God tested Abraham. Now, we need to be reminded that Abraham at this point is over 100 years old. It, this kind of test doesn't come to Abraham at 25 years old or 50 or 75 years old. Senior saints, God's not finished with you even at over 100 years old, right? He has not made you into Jesus' image, his perfect image yet. He's not finished with you. He's not finished building your faith or testing your faith. Young people don't look around and think, well, <laughs> I can just sit back and wait because, you know, these kind of tests only happen for older people. No, your faith is being built up and strengthened so that you can be tested and shown that God is real in your life and that God can be praised and glorified when your faith is built up. So all of us here need to be recognizing that Abraham, it, it, God has not given up on him. God's not finished with him. There are warnings throughout Scripture that, we, that reveal to us that if we think Christianity is just a way for me to be happy or to get what I want, we will find that we never really had faith in the living God. So don't give up thinking you're too old. Don't sit back and relax and think that you're too young. You're never not ready to start this life of Christianity. You're never too old and retired to live this life of worship, Christianity, receive God's commands. God tested Abraham. But you'll notice that God didn't tell Abraham that, did he? And, and we understand, we know in our life that God's not really telling us when we're being tested, when it's discipline, when it's just living in a fallen world. We don't know why things are happening. Abraham didn't know the why. He knew the who and the what. God, his commands. What did God say? Take your son, your only son. Isaac, whom you love. <laughs> Is there any question about who he's talking about? None, because Isaac, uh, Abraham had had another son, Ishmael, but God had said, send him out. You now have this one son, this one who the promises are supposed to come through, the one that God has given you, the promised son. He's the precious gift given to him in his old age. Take him and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, in case we're not sure what that means, that means the offering that's set on fire, burned up, and until it's gone. The whole thing is given to God. There's nothing else left. So God said, through Isaac, 
your offspring will be named. Through Isaac, the promises will come. Now take this Isaac and sacrifice him. So the test is whether you receive the commands of God. And Abraham's answer is immediate. The next morning he got up early in the morning and he set out. But what we notice in this account is the detail, the drawn-out details. And I slowed down as I read this so that we could see the painstaking details. Abraham saddled his donkey. He took his two young men and, and Isaac. And Isaac is probably at this point a young adult. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and he went and it took three days. <laughs> and, and he's bringing the night. You, you can see all of this. And Abraham's not de- de- delaying. We're, we're not seeing this because Abraham's doing something wrong or he's lollygagging or, or taking a sweet time. Moses, who is the, the, writing this, the human author of this, is spelling all of this out because it's like living this nightmare with Abraham alongside him. Like, You've just been told to sacrifice your son. So he's, it's surreal. Like, what's happening? I mean, I'm obeying. I'm doing what God says. But, but I'm, I'm not making a lot of sense of this, but I'm doing what God says. I'm receiving his commands. Isaac asks, my father, where's the lamb? We got everything else here for the, for the slaughter, for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Abraham gives him an answer, and they continue up the mountain. They, they are going together, and, and he built the altar, and he laid the wood, and he bound Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and he reached, it slows down, slow motion now, right? He reaches out his hand, he grabs the knife to slaughter his son. And again, Abraham's not slowing down the action. He's doing everything God told him to do, and he's doing it. As, as expediently, as quickly as he can. But Moses has slowed this down as he writes this because Abraham is singularly focused on what God gave him to do. There's no hesitation. He's going through with it, but the cost for this worship is real. The great cost of worship is real. So Moses dictates this to us. And Abraham has received the command of God in full, to the full extent of what God said. So let's think about that for just a minute together, the full extent of God's commands. Because a lot of times we're okay with God's commands. Love God. Check. Got it. Right? I can do that. I'm doing that. I'm loving God. Uh, With your whole heart, soul, mind, strength, spirit, with everything you've got, every time you breathe in, I'm loving God, I'm loving God, I'm loving God. I'm loving God, I'm loving God, I'm loving God as you exhale. And every time you hold your breath, there's not a heartbeat or a breath that doesn't go by where you're not saying, I love God, I love God with every fiber of my being and not letting up. That's a little bit different. (laughs) That's a little bit more impossible, we might say, on our own. Love your neighbor. Yeah, I can do that. That's a good idea. That seems right. I should love my neighbor. Since we've been here, do you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you have scratched your head if you've needed to, or you've shifted your weight, you've crossed your legs, or you haven't, you've fanned yourself, or you've helped your child, you've done everything that you can do to make sure that you are comfortable and taken care of. And that's okay, that's all right, you need to be doing that. But in that way that you've taken care of yourself and made yourself comfortable, now do that to the people around you. Make sure that they have what they need. In fact, in fact, we're told in, in Philippians to consider others as more significant than ourselves. So in every way that I feed myself and make sure that I get sleep and make sure that I have a break and make sure that I've adjusted my weight in my chair and, and all of the things that I've done, I need to make sure that the people around me have what they need in that same way. Well, that's a little bit different than I should just love my neighbor. <laughs> 
the extent of God's commands. Um, you know, give to the Lord. Yeah, okay, I'll give a few bucks. No, he says give yourself to the Lord. Give everything that you have and are. Now, that doesn't mean make yourself broke. You know, give everything that you have to the church, but give sacrificially, worshipfully, in love. Your time, your money, your energy, what you have. See, the commands of God and their extent are given to us in His Word. We don't get to figure it out for ourselves. But they lead to that faith life of worship that doesn't make any sense to people in the world. As they look at a Christian and they say, well, why are you doing that? Why do you spend all your time? You know, I get two days off every weekend. Instead of one day to enjoy creation, I get two days to enjoy creation and, and whatever I want to do. What are you doing? Why do you give a whole day? Why do you go to church? Instead of placate God, you know, maybe you could go once in a while. Maybe you could go to Koinonia group once every other month, or maybe you could go to the prayer meeting once a year, or just, just placate God and just give Him enough. That's, that's enough, right, God? Not for a faithful worshiper of God through Jesus, not as a Christian. So Abraham receives the full extent of the command of God for worship, and without hesitation, he obeys, but it's costly, it's hard, it's heavy, but he obeys. But notice at no point does Abraham say, but God, this is Isaac that you said will come all the promises. How can I sacrifice him? I can't make sense of this, God. Answer me, and then I'll obey. At no point do we see him do that. He says, God says this, God says that. I don't know how to make it fit together, but I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what he says. He doesn't, like many of us today, say, God, you're in total control. You have all control of everything. You are totally and completely sovereign, and yet I can choose. I have free will. And God, I don't know how to reconcile that in my mind. And so until I can figure that out, until you can explain that to me, then I'm just going to sit here and rest or wait. And, and you tell me how this works. Abraham doesn't do that. He says, I don't know. I don't know how. But God said, so I said, yes, Lord. He says, you guys stay here. Isaac and I are going. We're going to go worship, verse 5 says. And when we're finished, we're going to return. I don't know how. I can't even imagine how. At this point, Abraham had never heard of and had never seen someone resurrected from the grave. But he says, God's going to figure it out somehow. As worshipers of God, that's what it looks like. It may be costly. It may be heavy. It may be impossible for us. But Jesus actually says, when you come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When Isaac asks him where the lamb is, Abraham simply says, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. God had already provided Isaac. He can do it again. It, 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 whatever it's going to be, however he's going to do it, it could be that God has provided Isaac for this purpose, yet somehow he's still going to use him for the blessings to come. How does it work? We don't know. Hebrews 11 gives us some insight into what was going on in Abraham's mind. He, he, he considered that God was going to be able to do something, raise him from the dead. He's going to get him back somehow. Christian, our job is not to figure out how, but the what and the who. Who? God. Who? Us. What is, what is it? His commands. So we say, yes, God. We obey. We worship by obeying. And that's because we've become Christians. That's because we are believers, disciples of Jesus. That's not how we become disciples but now that we are, that's what we're about. We're saved from worshiping worthless things. We're saved from worshiping idols. 
sin and its consequences, now we're renewed, we're transformed into worshipers who receive God's command. So that's number one. The second lesson for worshipers, faithful worshipers, in verses 11 to 14 is that the faithful, transformed worshiper relies on God's provision. He or she relies on God's provision. As we left Abraham, the knife was in his hand, right? The knife is over his son, Isaac. In the very next breath, Isaac will have no more breath. The knife is coming down, but verse 11, stop, (laughs) right? The angel of the Lord comes. Here he is again, that messenger from God, that angel that's unlike any other angel that's different from all other messengers from God because he doesn't just speak for the Lord. He speaks as the Lord. And he's here to save Isaac. Abraham, Abraham, I mean, yeah, Isaac. He says to Abraham, Abraham, stop, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God. Remember, this was a test of Abraham. It was a test to show what his faith was made of. And here his faith is proven. He's willing to give up anything the Lord his God has given him to worship this God. Even his most precious relationship, his only son, he's willing to give that up. He passed the test because he fears God. Fear of God is reverencing him as sovereign, trusting him implicitly, obeying him without question. That's what fearing him looks like. That's what worshiping him looks like. This was not a test. We need to make sure we understand this was not a test of his worship style. Okay, his worship stuff. In worshiping the true and living God, there's no human preference or taste or tradition that reigns supreme. Because the cultures all around Abraham were very happy to sacrifice children to their gods. They would have been just fine with human sacrifice. Molech demanded you sacrifice your son, that you burn him in fire. That's what worship looked like to the other cultures. But God has never been pleased with human sacrifice unless that human was his son Jesus as God given for us. He's never been pleased with just human sacrifice, especially children who are so precious to him. God's never been pleased by worship, however I would like to do it, whatever my tastes are, however my preference and tradition looks. So God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. That's why we're told up front it was a test. That's why he doesn't let him go through with it. But it's an important lesson. We don't get to choose what worship of God looks like. God does. If you're going to worship Allah, you need to learn what Allah said in the Quran. If you're going to worship Buddha, you need to study the writings and the Vedas for Hinduism. But to worship God, we're dependent on Him to tell us what worship looks like. And it's not through self-fulfillment, self-worship. Don't ask anything of me. I do what I want when it's convenient. And certainly don't tell me to obey. In fact, God did tell us what worship looks like. In the New Testament, through Jesus, because of everything that happens in Romans chapters 1 through 11, because of God's amazing grace to us that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ, the salvation that we have forever, by the mercies of God, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what worship looks like. Being transformed into that God worshiper through Jesus Christ, continually living your life as a sacrifice of worship to Him. And it's only good and acceptable by the mercies of God. 
that have come to us in Jesus. He's the one who provides to us all that we need. We rely on him to provide. That's how we can worship and be willing to give up anything that he asks us to give up. So the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from physically offering his son Isaac. He provides the ram to be offered instead of his son. Just as he told Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb, God has provided an animal instead to sacrifice to God instead of Isaac. So Abraham recognizes God's provision. He provided that to him. And he calls the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And we know this is one of God's names. We say it with a J sound, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh (laughs) is maybe a little bit more of the, the modern pronunciation of how to say it, but the root of the word is seeing. God is the one who sees. He sees everything. There's nothing he doesn't see. But in this sense, God will see to it. God will provide. This is the God who sees and provides. It becomes such a vivid picture that six or 700 years later, as Moses writes this, Moses says, to this day, it's said, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. When you worship, God provides. As you worship him and as you sacrifice everything to him, he provides. He provides what you need. As you worship God, are you willing to sacrifice anything and everything? As you adore this God, as you fear this God, as you worship this great God with every breath and every heartbeat, do you give him everything? Are you willing to give him anything? Do you trust him to provide everything that you need? He provides to us all the time. As we prayed this morning, as Amos led us in prayer, we know that he provides everything that we have and everything that we are, every heartbeat and breath. As we give him everything, he gives to us everything we need to continue to survive, to continue to go on, and to continue to live a life of worship. He doesn't promise to give us everything we could ever want and be comforted with and and find our satisfaction and contentment here in the world. He doesn't promise that, but he promises to give us what we need so that we can continue to live a life of worship. Is that what you do with all that you have? I, I can't stand here in front of you and say, yes, everything I have, I always use all of it for God's glory. To, and, and I'm willing to give up everything every second of the day. I could just give it all to Him and I'd be fine. It, that's hard. That's a hard thing to ask. That's what we're working for. That's what we're striving for by God's work in us, by the strength and the faith that he gives us. You know, a lot of times we ask God for things and we should be asking God for what we need, but, you know, we, oh, God, I need a new car. <laughs> I need a new job. I, I need a new house. I need a new <laughs> fill in the blank. Consider what you're asking God for and why. Sometimes he says you're not getting what you ask because you don't ask for it. James 4, he says that. Or you don't have because you ask, but you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, on yourself, right? Are you willing to deny yourself in comparison to the love that you have for this God? Hate everybody else around you, even your own family. Are you willing to sacrifice your dreams of being rich in this world? Are you willing to sacrifice the respect of people because you're trying to raise your children in the discipline, the admonition, the love of the Lord instead of the way psychology says you're supposed to raise your children? 
Are you willing to do any of what God says, receive his commands and trust him to provide because the only way that you can do this is through Jesus as he provides to you everything that you need to worship like this. Rather than depending on our family or friends to give us meaning and purpose and belonging, rather than relying on our own strength to provide and using our money the way we see fit because it's ours and we did it, we got it, are we trusting God? Are we depending on him for our meaning, for our purpose? Are we trusting him to provide even as we work and as we work hard, that's what he uses to provide? Are we willing to do that in worship for him? See how this is all-encompassing? It doesn't mean that as Christians we have to step back away out of the world and try to live on our own doing only what pleases God the way that we think. No, he says be in the world, working, providing, loving others, serving, doing these things out of worship for him, not for our own purposes. And it's all based on God's character, this Jehovah Jireh, this God who sees, who sees too what we need. He calls us to obey. And so we trust him. We rely on him to provide. Because he's good. Because he does. He does. So a faithful worshiper receives God's commands and relies on his provision Number three, the next lesson in verses 15 to 19 is that the faithful, the transformed worshiper rejoices in the blessings of God. We rejoice in the blessings of God. The angel of God speaks to Abraham a second time here. And again, notice he doesn't speak for the Lord. He speaks as the Lord. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. By myself I have sworn. We've seen and talked about how God's word is always true. God doesn't have to make a promise or a covenant or swear that this will happen. When he says it, it will, it will happen. But he does it for our benefit. He gives us something to sink our teeth into. This is a promise, a covenant from God. Because sometimes it takes a while. It happens in his time. But when God swears something, when God promises something to you, who, who can co-sign on that promise? Who's able to co-sign on that? When, when I bought my second vehicle, I finally got rid of my first car. It was dying all the time. It was costing a lot of money to keep it running. I finally traded it in. Actually, they took it off my hands. And I got my next vehicle. I didn't have enough money to buy a vehicle. So I had to take out a loan to get the vehicle. And when you take out a loan, you're promising to pay the money back, right? That's what, that's what it is. Well, I didn't have any credit history. They had no no guarantee that I, this young teenager, was going to pay back all of this money that I was borrowing. So they required a co-signer. Somebody who said, if this young kid doesn't pay this money back, then this person will. We'll go after this person. Now, as a side note, I don't recommend becoming a co-signer. That's not a good idea. Uh, Proverbs and three different, you have two of them in your notes, but add Proverbs 6 as well. Proverbs advises strongly against being a co-signer. So consider the wisdom or lack of wisdom in being one, but I needed that so that I could buy that car and get that loan, or that's what I thought at the time that I needed that. But for God, there's no one to be a co-signer. There's nobody that says, if God doesn't come through, then come after this person and and they'll come through. (laughs) If God doesn't come through, nobody will, but God always comes through. He never fails. God has a perfect credit history. (laughs) He's always come through on time, in his time, So when he makes a promise, when he swears, when he makes a covenant, there is no one greater to swear by. There's nobody that can co-sign or guarantee this except himself. So he says, I swear by myself, this 
will happen. These blessings will come to you. Abraham 6 explains that as well. It's impossible for God to lie. So the blessings of God are given here from God, again, to Abraham, co-signed by God himself. (laughs) It's the powerful, seeing, providing God that we've been talking about who's worthy of worship. He's just provided perfectly for Abraham and, and a substitute for Isaac. And it's the same God who's got the perfect track record, a perfect credit history of coming through and fulfilling his word every time exactly the way he said. So it's in him that we find our hope. It's in him that we find our joy where we can rejoice. We have the, the blessings. We have the rejoicing, perfect hope and peace of God's blessings from his word. So he rehearses that here for Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you. He told him that in chapter 12. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. He told him that in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That, that, that's a new one we'll talk about in a second. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He told him that in chapter 12 and chapter 18. He's rehearsing his word back to Abraham. And the only part that's new is that you, they will possess the gate of his enemies, that, that Israel will do that. Later on, as God has promised this land, that he will make sure that they take it, that they get control of the cities. But these are the blessings of God. And they're rehearsed again to Abraham from the Word of God. The same blessings, the same truth that Abraham's had every time. There's nothing new. It's just God's Word rehearsed and refreshed and renewed and brought to his mind for him to rejoice in. It's the same Word that Abraham got when he was confused and he was discouraged when he was down. It's the same Word that gives him joy and rejoicing when he's up and he's happy and he's excited. God's counsel for us, his advice for us, his commands, his blessings, his promises, and his word are never changing. And I love that about Abraham's interaction with God throughout his life. God makes these promises and he says, look, remember this? God, this just happened and that's going wrong and I did that. Yeah, but remember my promises. Remember this. Think on that. And they are absolutely fulfilled, but not during Abraham's lifetime. Right? We know they're fulfilled. We have the rest of the scriptures here. We see all of these promises fulfilled, but Abraham doesn't get it in his lifetime. And that's so much like what we have. So much of our lives are looking to these great promises and these great blessings of God, but we're probably not going to be able to see them all happen in our lifetime. We might want to be more like Job who went through some really hard times and then God brought him through it and he gave him double what he had before. We, we might want the Job model, but most of us are probably going to end up like the Abraham model. Trust, rely on me, believe my promises, have faith, they are happening. You'll get to see them start to happen like Abraham does. You get to start to see it, but you're not going to see it fulfilled all the way until he brings you home. We, we may be more like Abraham. So learn Brother and sister, let's learn to rejoice in God's blessings and His promises, His commands now. That's where we can have our joy, the blessings that He gives us in His Word. Let's learn to rejoice now in what He has said, not in the things that are all around us that we're tempted to worship and that promise us what they can never give us. We're we're trusting this God and we're rejoicing in what He says. Now, hold on, because here comes another surprise. (laughs) Last week, I said that our faith is tested in hard times. It's rewarded in good times, and it's built in the in-between times. 
Now, that's not exclusive. Don't, don't make, well, is this a good time? Is this a bad time? Is my faith being tested or built? It, it's just a general principle to help us realize that God is always working in every moment, not just in those really big moments that are really hard or really good and easy, but every moment, the, the 100% of our life, the main time is the meantime. <laughs> we're, we're never sitting back and doing nothing. God's building our faith at all times. He's enabling and empowering that. And that's what we see here. In this incredibly difficult time that Abraham just went through, the call was to sacrifice Isaac, and his faith was being tested. When did it happen? After these things, after the long years of waiting, building his faith. His faith was being strengthened and built day by day, month by month, year by year, waiting. And so it was in the meantime that his faith was being built. It was tested in this low time. But now he's got the joy and comfort of his son not having to be sacrificed. He's celebrating, I've got my son. I get to keep him. And now his faith is being, in this good time, rewarded. Say, how do you know this is a reward for faithfulness, for obedience? fervent action in the hearing. That's what faith means as we've been talking about. Well, look at what God says in verse 16. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Because you did what I said, I will bless you. Look at verse 18. That was the way he started in verse 16. It's the way he ends in verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because you've obeyed, there's blessing for you and your offspring. And there's blessing for the entire rest of the earth because you obeyed Abraham. Abraham's faith worked out obedience and it brought blessings. Now, you may be scratching your head a little. You should be kind of questioning in your mind, wait, wait a minute. These blessings of God were already promised to Abraham. They were already covenanted to Abraham. God by himself went through the elements and he gave this unilateral covenant with Abraham. How does he say, because you obeyed, now these things will happen? What does that mean? Which is it? Is it God that brought it about unilaterally, or was it Abraham's obedience? And the answer is yes. Some of you already were ahead of me, right? You, you saw that coming. It's a paradox. It's a, what's a paradox? A paradox is when two things seem like they don't agree. They seem like opposite. They can't both be true, but they are both true because they're not opposites. But how do they work together? It's beyond my comprehension. It's a beyond my finite mind's ability to comprehend. So this is a paradox that God gives the blessings unilaterally, yet he gives them to Abraham because he obeyed. Abraham could have decided not to obey. He had it other times in his life. But God worked out obedience, yet Abraham worked it out himself. Who was it? Who did it? Yes, God did it. Abraham did it. Again, like Abraham, we're not given the responsibility to work out this paradox. There are plenty of other paradoxes. I mean, but, but what does he say in verse 12? Now I know you fear God. God said that. Doesn't God know everything already? Yes, he does. And yes, we needed to find out if Abraham's faith was real, whether it was true. In salvation, God gets all the glory for saving us because he did all of the work. But I had faith to believe. I repented. I made that decision. Yes, you did. 
because God worked it out in you, and you did it by yourself. I mean, it just keeps, it goes around in our minds, and we say, God, how do I figure this out? He said, you don't need to figure it out. (laughs) I've got it figured out. God's got this. You don't, right? I don't. So we trust in him. We rely in him. My job is not to figure out what only the infinite, all-wise, omniscient God knows in his mind. My job is to do what he said in faith, trusting him, believing in him. And yet God in his grace, even though it's God working in us, we know that it's God who gives us faith. We've talked about that. We've looked at that in the scriptures. We know that it's God who grants repentance, and yet it's something that we've got to do. And yet when we do it, and we know that God did it, but we did it, <laughs> he rewards us. He rewards us for it. So rejoice in the blessings of God that, that he brings to us, that he works out, that, he, that he's blessed us with. All of these promises, all of God's word, Everything that's here, all of his, his promises, we find our joy and fulfillment and hope and peace in. It's not in anything here. It's not in our physical possessions. It's not in what we seek after and, and are greedy for and our physical pleasure. Whatever else is here, it's temporary and physical. It's, it's not to be found. It's all in the kingdom of God. So let's, let's rejoice in the truth of God's word. Finally, the final lesson In verses 20 to 24, for the faithful, transformed worshiper, this person rests in God's works. Rests in God's works. Now, you may be looking at that paragraph and thinking, come again? (laughs) What what is this paragraph for with with Milcah, your brother Nahor, the children that they have? What is going on here? (laughs) I mean, it's just family that Abraham left behind. What could be so important that it has to make its way here. As Abraham ponders how God will make his offspring come through Isaac, Isaac can't have offspring unless Isaac has a wife. So Abraham's starting to ponder this. I'm getting older and Isaac needs a wife. And he thinks if I take a wife from Egypt, then he's probably going to end up going down to Egypt and worshiping like the Egyptians do. If I take a wife from the people around me, then Isaac is probably going to end up just like the people around me. He's not going to be this transformed worshiper. Maybe this extended family would be a good place. Now, this was a good idea at this point in time. It's no longer a good idea to try to find a wife for your son in extended family today. Right? We understand that. It was okay then. It's not now. Very soon after this, it wouldn't be okay, right? But the point of this genealogy is right here in verse 23. You may have parentheses around it like it's an afterthought. (laughs) Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Spoiler alert. Rebecca is going to be Isaac's wife. That's the reason that we have this in here. But the, the idea that we're getting from this is that nothing is insignificant. There's nothing that doesn't matter. All that God is doing is leading up to something. God's always at work. He's never, we've talked about it many times, he's never looking away, he's never distracted, he's never asleep and tired. He's always working, and we know ultimately it's all for his glory. But for many other points along the way, God is doing things, he's working, he's accomplishing, he's doing what only he can do. So rather than us being worried about the intricate movement of every piece and part of life just the way I want, 
rather than being anxious about the expansive changes in world politics, and there are many going on right now, it's a very rapid change, there are some very scary things happening. If our hope is here in earth and, and in politics and in government, we would be very scared people. We would have an understanding of those who have no hope, but we have hope because we rest in God. Nothing that's happening is insignificant. Nothing that's happening is for nothing and for no reason. We rest in the wisdom, the power, the goodness of God. Again, he's got it. I don't. So I rest in him. Our application, as we've said, this message is all about stop. (laughs) Surrender all to God. The first one, just surrender all to God. Don't try to hold on to anything in this world. Don't try to hold on to yourself by yourself. Uh, we were having a conversation this morning, a couple men and I, and, and one of them said something that he had heard this week, and, and you know, if, you, if you could lose your salvation, if you could lose your grip on God, then you would. But praise God, we're not the ones trying to hold on. He's holding on to us. Surrender all to God, so trust Him to provide. That's the T, the next one. Trust Him to provide. He's the one that's bringing everything about. He's the one that's providing. He's the one that has always provided. So trust Him to continue. The next is obey completely. Obey completely. Now, for a lot of Christians, obey is a four-letter word. And I know it has four letters in it, but you know what I mean, that, that oh, that's a terrible word. Because we know that we cannot obey to become believers. Nobody can obey. Nobody can be good enough to come to God. God makes us good enough in Jesus, His Son, because Jesus is good enough. He sacrificed Himself. He died for us and took our punishment, took our place. And then He rose again to conquer our sin and death, its consequences. And now that we've believed and we've turned away from our sin and turned away from this world to Him, we're obeying Him because He has saved us, because He loved us. So we're surrendering all, we're trusting Him, we're obeying completely, and we praise Him continually. We give Him all the praise all the time because He's doing all of this. We don't take it for ourselves, even though we're working hard and we're doing what He says and, and we're striving for what He wants, but He gets all the praise and the glory because He's working it out in us. That Christian is living a life of worship. This is what it looks like to be a transformed worshiper for God. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that Jesus demonstrated perfect worship and fear and love for you. God, we can't do that on our own. We can't work it out. We can't make it happen in ourselves. But Lord, Jesus did it for us already. And when we come to him, when we turn away from ourselves, we believe in him by faith, by grace, through faith in him. God, you make us new creations. You transform us. God, I pray that you would be working in each of us to change us from within, that we would live that out, that that would be true of us, that people would look at us. God, sometimes they'd they'd scratch their heads at us. God, sometimes they'd shake their heads at us. But Lord, they will always know in their minds, in their heads, that it is you doing it. God, I pray that that be true. I pray that you give us a boldness in love, God, to share this message, to live this message. God, we pray this so often, but Lord, it is a constant prayer. It's a constant desire of our hearts because that glorifies you. It brings you praise and glory and honor and blessing and power and might and strength forever. Father, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.